Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. The Other Hand is part of the Acast Creator Network. Hey Jim, good to see you again. As we reach the end of a busy week, we've had quite a lot of economic news and a bit of political stuff that I want to talk about later. But starting with the economics, we've had inflation data from the States, very, very important, very significant, market moving indeed, a bit anyway. We've had Irish inflation, which I know you want to talk about. This morning, as we are talking, we have had UK growth figures released, numbers for GDP in the second quarter. They've been a wee bit better than expected, and I'll talk a bit about that. I know that both of us, particularly you, Jim, are keen to talk about Biden's China policies and his latest announcement, executive order, banning certain tech exports that might be used by the Chinese military. So I invite you to offer a bit of analysis of that. And I know both of us want to talk about Niger. We tried to do this last time, but ran out of time. So we're going to leave it to the end. And hopefully this time we will leave enough room to talk about what I think are very significant developments going on there. And indeed in the whole African region that Niger sits, the so-called Sahel. So, Jim, why don't you start the economic discussion off with a mention of Irish inflation data, which was out earlier this week. And that will segue nicely into US inflation. Hi, Chris. Good to talk. Yeah, we, we got Irish inflation. The headline rate has fallen to 5.8%, down from 6.1% in June, and a peak of 9.2% last October. Um, there was an increase of just 0.2% on the month. So what we're seeing here is pretty consistent with what we're seeing in most countries around the world at the moment, You know, a gradual decline in headline inflation. There's a few bits of it that jump out at me. Obviously, energy, you know, it continues to have a downward impact on overall prices, although uh, we have seen a bit of a, an uptick in the last month, largely reflecting global issues that we've discussed, particularly oil and natural gas. But that aside, food price inflation continues to increase, tick up. 
8.5% year on year. Rice prices up by 11.2%. And that feeds back into the discussion we've had recently about the Indian ban on certain rice exports. So certainly starting to uh, permeate through the inflation data here in Ireland, at least. The private rental market continues to experience upward pressure. According to the CSO, up 0.6% during the month. That's 7.2% year on year. So we continue to get this incessant upward trend in private rents. And that kind of feeds into a story in the front of the Irish Times today about the first eviction data we've seen since the ban on evictions was lifted up 20%. So that is significant. But the rental market continues to be pretty dysfunctional. Another issue is mortgage interest costs. Reflecting what the European Central Bank is doing, up 2.3% in the month. And wait for it, the average mortgage rate in Ireland today is 49.5% higher than a year ago. So that, of course, feeds into the political realm also, because there is a lot of pressure being brought on government from the opposition benches at the moment to consider the reintroduction of mortgage interest relief in the budget on October 10th. What do you think about that, Jim, as a a concept, as an idea? Well, I've always felt that measures that tinker with the demand side of the market are not good uh, because, you know, if if you alleviate the pressure on the mortgage side, um, you're just increasing the ability of people to pay more for a property. So I, I think the risk, of course, is that it just stimulates demand whereas the big problem in the Irish market is the lack of supply. I would much prefer to see aggressive measures being addressed at the supply side of the market. But politically, you know, when you get an increase of 49.5% in average mortgage costs, um, clearly the political pressure to do something about that is intense. So whether the government does it or not, it, it remains to be seen. You know, we'll probably get about 25 U-turns on it ahead of the budget. I'm tempted to say that, to ask the question and give you my answer anyway, uh, the question being, should people be rescued from the folly of their own financial mistakes? I I totally agree with you, Chris. Well, yeah, I mean, (laughs) that's the question. I haven't supplied, my answer is, of course, no, they shouldn't. But of course, everybody will come back at us then and say, well, you know, you rescued the banks, why can't you rescue us? And this is the problem, isn't it? That the legacy of the financial crisis will run for a very long period of time. Uh, and I think people should not be rescued and you know, unless they are experiencing a grave hardship, which means that they need to seek welfare benefits and all the rest of it. Nobody should suffer that greatly. But taking out a mortgage, thinking that interest rates will stay forever, everybody um, who was supposedly an expert or knew something about the area told people interest rates will not stay at zero forever. We did. That's what we said. Lots of people said it. So anybody that is now experiencing trouble because mortgage rates have moved somewhat back to normal levels, I think that there's a principle involved here that says that 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 was financial folly and that they shouldn't. But, you know, one has to recognise the politics of this. They are going to do something, aren't they, Jim? Oh, yeah, they are going to do something. But uh, you make the point there about people will come back and say, well, we rescued the banks. Why don't we rescue... That was the ultimate financial folly rescue, wasn't it? It, it was indeed. Of course, it was. Two wrongs don't make a right. But the, 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 other, the other point, I guess, is that, you know, the government over the last couple of budgets, and indeed between budgets, 
has provided a lot of cost of living support to the economy. You know, we got electricity credits, we got all sorts of packages introduced. That's not rescuing people from financial folly. That's rescuing people no, from, from, from financial problems. From financial hardship, yes. not of their cause. Not uh, of their, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, I I take that point, but the government has provided a lot of financial support. Okay, Uh, that is a fact for whatever reason. But on on the mortgage side, I I just think we need to see a more and more preponderance of fixed rate mortgages in this market because that protects people from um, increases in variable rates uh, instigated by the European Central Bank. That has been the European model, and that's why. You know, European mortgage holders in general have been a lot less exposed to ECB rate increases than, for example, here in Ireland, where there's always been this love affair variable. And any time, I, I, I guess I shouldn't generalize, but when we talk about fixing your mortgage, uh, one response I always get is, well, the only reason the banks are offering fixed rate products is because they're screwing you. You know, there is a basic mistrust of the banks and fixed rate mortgages. And it's very, very difficult to get people to buy into fixed rate products in this country because of basic mistrust of the financial institutions. Everybody should take a look. Everybody who's exposed to variable mortgage rates, even still, should take a look at the fixed rate products on offer and make a decision. Does it make financial sense even at this stage to lock in? Because the, the one thing that fixing your mortgage does is it's an insurance policy. It insulates you against further ECB rate increases and it helps you sleep at night. It buys you certainty. That more than anything else is what a fixed rate product does for one. But of course, now the view will be that the European Central Bank's interest rate cycle is close to the peak and that perhaps one more increase, but after that, rates will start to come down. So a lot of people will now hold on for that. But I suppose the another fundamental point is that over the last number of years, um, all borrowers have been living through a period of historically low interest rates. And people on track of mortgages particularly did really well. Okay, and you didn't hear him complaining during that period. So I, I fundamentally don't believe people should be rescued from financial folly. But I would also say that the politics of this are very compelling and very pressurized at the moment. If you're a populist, Jim, I think that's the, the conclusion I take from this is that populism can gain you power because you make promises like, I'll solve the housing crisis if you vote me into office. And then as a populist, when you actually have your hands on the levers of power, you have to stay popular. And staying popular means trying to appease just about everybody or at least enough people to keep you in power, which means that you never do the right thing. You just end up trying to appease various interest groups and lobbyists and you never have a strategy. You never have any kind of coherent policy framework that means that you end up doing the right thing and you run the risk or the high probability of always doing the wrong things by being populist and I think that's what we there's a mortgage interest relief is one of those particular aspects of this is that it makes no economic sense whatsoever there are no economic reasons for doing mortgage interest tax relief in any shape or form in my view and that it's a purely populist measure And it just shows you that economics and economic analysis and logic and reason just go out the window when you do have these 
populist measures that are also highly emotive and salient and cut across because, of course, uh, lots of people are heavily invested in the mortgage market. Even if you don't have a mortgage, you are heavily invested in the mortgage market, either via your children, your friends, your relatives, or indeed your own house price. Because the more you can stoke housing demand, the more your house price will go up, Jim. So even if you don't have a mortgage, you have a vested interest in having mortgage interest tax relief because you, you'll become richer. So it's, it's quite nuts in a way. And, and the econ- fundamental economic point, if there is another one to be made here, is that getting house prices down, getting mortgage payers to feel some pain is the point of these ta- interest rate increases. So if you have the monetary arm inflicting monetary pain via higher interest rates on the one hand, and then the fiscal authorities taking that pain away, what's the point of all that activity? I mean, really, it's just stupid. It, it, you couldn't make it up. It's so stupid. But there we are. Well, absolutely. I mean, the, the optimal outcome is to have fiscal and monetary policy working together, trying to achieve the same objectives. And unfortunately, the political cycle uh, militates against that happening. Um, my final point on this, Chris, would be, you know, at the end of the day, I prefer to see all of this attention being devoted to the supply side of the market rather than the demand side. And we've had numerous discussions about all of the stuff that needs to happen on the supply side, not least significant changes to the planning system and how it works. Um, Also, I think reducing the cost of delivering housing and so on. So lots of stuff needs to happen on the supply side, politically more difficult. Can I ask you a very simple question that I was asked by a young Dublin-dwelling person yesterday? Okay, the government's got this big surplus, headlines on the BBC, not just RTE the other day, of 60-odd billion over the next four or five years. Why don't they just use all of it to build houses? Now, where's the pasty going to come from? I don't know. I'm not a, so I'm, I'm asking this as a non-economist, as a young person who hasn't got anywhere to live other than the family home, and then only if they're lucky that have they got that. They, they genuinely cannot get their heads around why if there's 60 billion sitting around, sloshing around, looking for a home, you just don't build a lot of houses with it. Well, there's there's a lack of capacity to deliver. You know, what does that, what, what does that mean, Jim? That means, Chris, that the construction sector um, is operating at full tilt at the moment. So, if if you want to build a lot more houses, you've got to address the ability and the capacity of the construction sector. Um, so, I, I, I mean, import, I, import the materials and import the workers. Exactly. Yes, indeed. Why don't yeah. we do that? Yeah. Why don't we? I don't know. I mean. Yeah. It's, it's, if there's a shortage, then just import whatever you've got a shortage of. It's not. It strikes me that I'm, again, I'm playing devil's advocate here. Is where is, where are the binding constraints? I can see where there are constraints, but where are the binding constraints? Are there any that stop you from spending sixty five billion on new houses? You see, we we have a lot of developers. I mean, the, the state sector doesn't have the capacity to build houses. Okay, local authorities don't build houses anymore because that capacity was removed over the last three or four decades. By capacity, do you mean knowledge? Knowledge, absolutely. But they don't have the skill set within local authorities. So they would have to hire, bring in lots of construction workers. So the way in which this would operate, if you're going to spend those budget surplus on delivering housing, uh, you basically get local authorities to get private sector developers in to build. And of course, if private sector developers are brought in to build state social and affordable housing will then the delivery of owner-occupied private housing will be uh, distorted as a result of that so 
you know, the, the, the problem is if you, if, you, if you focus, and I think I've said this before, there's been way too much focus of debate on social and affordable housing. The housing market is made up of three components, as I see it. The owner-occupier piece, that's those of us who want to buy and own our own houses. There is the rental market piece, which is incredibly important. And it is particularly important in Ireland because of the multinational presence here, because a lot of multinational workers may not be here for very long. They don't want to buy. They want to rent, as they can do in most countries around the world. And the third piece is the social and affordable. We are devoting way too much attention to the social and affordable, ignoring the other two components of the market. Um, A holistic approach is required here, addressing all three elements of the market. And if you simply pump all of those budget surpluses into the delivery of social and affordable housing, you're preventing the other elements of the market from being addressed. And you talk to developers, which I try to do quite a lot. I try and talk to everybody, um, all stakeholders in this market from time to time. But developers have a huge funding problem at the moment. Okay, Since the crash and the demise of the Irish banking system, the funding of private development has become very difficult and more expensive. Uh, The tax take on new houses is incredibly strong. Roughly 40% of the price of a new house goes back to either the government or the local authority and VAT development levies and so on. So you address all of those issues. And if developers are finding it difficult to raise finance on capital markets, well, there's the role of government. Step in, provide subsidised funding to the developers to deliver. But that, 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 would, that would double the number of Sinn Féin seats in the next election. Exactly, Chris, and that's it. The obvious stuff that needs to be done here is politically verboten, and that is the problem. You know, developers were demonised after the crash, some justifiably, some not justifiably, because we've, we've often discussed this Uh, You know, there are very bad developers, there are very good developers, and there's a lot of developers in the middle. But during the crash, and particularly the behavior of NAMA, it treated all developers as um, evil tax dodgers, etc., etc. The bottom line is, without a properly functioning and funded developer class, we will not deliver the housing supply that's required. And if, and if we don't accept that, we will never solve the housing crisis. And of course, um, on the political left particularly, it is totally verboten to do anything that might be remotely seen as helping developers. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewellery of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Your thought process there, which is very compelling, uh, the logic is very compelling there, Jim, is, is, is clear, clear something up in my own mind, which is that I've always had grave doubts about whether Sinn Féin will be able, in a practical sense, nothing to do with ideology or anything like that, 
in a purely practical sense, will Sinn Féin be able to sort out the housing problem over a decent time period? And the answer has to be an emphatic no, unless they involve the private sector, which they're not going to do for ideological reasons. So they're not going to solve the housing crisis. Is that too simplistic? Well, that's my view of the world, Chris. Okay, Shall we move on? Yeah, a, a final point I'd make on the Irish inflation data. Um, another major contributor um, to inflation at the moment. Package holidays up 14.8% in the month, 64.4% year on year. Okay, and on the Irish inflation piece, I think there's one other noteworthy point that in the year to July, service sector inflation was running at 10 percent goods inflation at just 0.6 percent year on year. Okay, and and this is quite typical of what's happening everywhere. It's the service sector is really the problem area. And that is reflecting, amongst other things, the tight labor markets. Mm. As, as I said before, I think that's that's going to ease up over the next while, but it, perhaps not here in the UK, where contrary to all of my prognostications about the UK being an economic basket case, here we get uh, some growth numbers for the second quarter, which I think on Bloomberg of all um, sober uh, reporting sites described it as soar away, stunning growth. It was actually 0.2%. So and a little bit ahead of expectations. Well, I'm Chris, now you're using selective data there. Of course the, I am. I've got to make my point, haven't I? Exactly. The June number is the one that Bloomberg was referring to, up 0.5% in the month. That's yeah. sore away. Well, it is and it isn't, because there's all sorts of distortions caused by, I know, um, I know. by, by, by the extra bank holiday in May because of King Charles III doing something or other, getting coronated or something like that. Um, and activity <laughs> bouncing back in June. Or, oh, yeah, you can't help kind of, yourself. The UK is bouncing along the bottom of a very low growth rate. Uh, let's let's be clear about this. It's not in recession, obviously, but neither is it super sore away growth, Jim. Let's, Listen, let's so, so is Germany, Chris, okay? Yeah, I know, I know, I know. I, I talked about Germany in the last pod. I'm not saying the UK is alone in all of this. Um, the UK has very UK-specific problems, and Germany has very specific problems with respect to international trade in general, because it is the example of an exporting-based economy. Um, and its particular problems with exporting to China. Before we get on to that, Jim, I just wanted to make a simple point about trade. That often is, Trade is one of those things that unless you're steeped in it, you know, you have deep domain knowledge of trade, so much rubbish gets talked about it. So much rubbish was talked about it in the Brexit referendum. So much rubbish is talked about it when we talk about Ireland being a small open economy. And everybody thinks, for example, in the trade debate, people who aren't steeped in it, that exports are good and imports are bad. You often hear that, don't you? You do indeed, yeah. Which is complete and utter garbage, isn't it? Oh, because the oh. only reason, there is only one reason to export and one reason only, which is to be able to supply the funds to be, to, to be an importer. Otherwise, all you do is accumulate bits of, bits of paper uh, claims on other countries via your export revenues. And Germany is the example of a country that does that with its huge trade surplus. It should import a lot more. Um, and on that note, Jim, uh, introducing China, I know you wanted to talk about Joe Biden and his latest executive order. Before I do, Chris, there's one point I'd like to make on the UK and suck this in, OK? OK, he, suck, it, suck, suck it in or suck it up. Or suck it up, maybe. G GDP in June was 0.8% above 
February 2020 levels. Okay, so the UK economy has reattained and surpassed its pre. Where are you reading that rubbish? From the um, the ONS. Well, I'll read you from the FT. Uh, this print left quarterly GDP 0.2% below its pre-COVID peak. Ah, we're talking about two different things here. Yeah, we are indeed. I'm, I'm talking, talking about you're... you're talking about a particular point in time, and I'm talking about a different point in time. But anyway, yeah, we're not we're not talking big numbers here, Jim. No, we're not, Chris. We're not, we're not, we're not. I know. Uh, and and, and, and you're, you're forever going to have a go at me for my UK pessimism, which is interesting, isn't it, given where I sit? It, it is indeed. Maybe having I should spent, sit somewhere else. Having, having spent some time in London recently, uh, I love the city. You know, yeah. I get such a sense of vibrancy from. But anyway, that's beside the point. Biden, a bloody tourists at the moment. Absolutely, yeah. That was 10cc, wasn't it? <laughs> move on, move on. <laughs> okay, uh, Biden and China. Biden introduced an executive order earlier this week, putting restrictions on US investment in Chinese tech companies that could bolster the Chinese armed forces. Um, it's a pretty vague piece of legislation and, you know, subject to all sorts of interpretation. But it does show us again this evolving and contradictory relationship between China and the United States. Um, and Biden was speaking at a fundraiser early in the week. And apart from throwing out a lot of inaccuracies, he had a real go at China. He said that its economic and demographic problems are a ticking time bomb. It called its communist leaders bad folks. And he said that China has the highest unemployment rate going, which is incorrect. Uh, well, according to the official data. But he also said that when bad folks have problems, they do bad things. So you can just see in the U.S. administration, um, China is top of the agenda at the moment and the evolving relationship. And then, of course, you have Republican hopefuls like DeSantis, you know, basically saying that the economic relationship and the favoured trade relationship with China will be would be abolished under his presidency. Um, it, it's an intriguing relationship. And I think hopefully, Chris, if we're still doing this podcast in 20 years, we'll still be talking about this because I think it is the most fundamental global geopolitical relationship that will drive everything to varying degrees over the coming decades. One of the things that strikes me about it pretty fundamentally, actually, is that Biden is continuing to implement Trump's policies. A lot of people haven't recognized this. There's an article about it in the FT this week, I think by Gideon Rackman, basically saying that where, what Trump started, Biden is continuing. A friend of mine read this piece and exclaimed with horror that they didn't know this was happening and why was Biden doing what Trump was doing. Uh, so it isn't widely known, I don't think. It is just outside the United States being recognized that all of that anti-China rhetoric, and it was mostly rhetoric apart from all his tariffs, which have continued. There are still lots of tariffs on Chinese exports to the United States that Biden hasn't rolled them back. And he, as with this latest executive order, he is um, implementing Trump's rhetoric. And this, I think, is, is, is one of the more significant things about this, is the way in which the Biden administration is completely simpatico with what Trump was up to. And whoever wins the presidential election next year is going to obviously continue with these kinds of policies. I think it's very serious. I think it could lead to great mistakes being made. 
the one hope is that in all of the detail and uh, buried underneath the headlines of this latest executive order were hints that there has been a diplomatic uh, initiative stroke success in watering down the actual teeth, if you like, the impact of these, these latest measures in that they are expected not to matter very much in and of themselves. There's a lot of headlines, but not a lot of high impact stuff. And the reason why it has emerged in that fashion is because of the efforts of diplomats on both sides, that Joe Biden gets his I'm tough on China headlines in Washington, D.C., but companies operating in the China space get some new restrictions, but they aren't terribly significant. And that has been described, as I say, as a victory for diplomacy. So long may that continue. Chris, moving to Africa, we spoke uh, last week about the military coup in Niger. Um, yesterday, the Economic Community of Western African States ordered the deployment of a standby force to restore constitutional order. That part of the world is just becoming incredibly fraught with danger at the moment because Mali, Burkina Faso, Guinea, all of whom are members of the Economic Community of Western African States, they and they're all ruled by juntas at this stage they have all come out strongly in support of Niger's new leaders and basically suggesting that if there is a military intervention here against the coup, that they will react to that. So the sort of sense of economic stability insofar as has been achieved in Western Central Africa is being seriously destroyed at the moment. Uh, David Pilling has an interesting piece in the Financial Times this morning and he's talking about French involvement in Niger um, and, and indeed French involvement in all of its former colonies, whereas, you know, the Brits, they got out straight away virtually when they were leaving decolonizing, whereas the French have maintained a strong sort of business, political, military presence in those countries. Uh, we have the CFA Frank, for example, which is backed by Paris, um, used in 14 countries in that part of the world. So I think the policy is called Franca Freak, and that is causing a lot of resentment. You know, even in Niger at the moment, the pro-coup people are going around with anti-French banners. So basically, this is another post-colonial um, shitfest that is erupting at the moment. Unfortunately, the big winners in this would appear to be Russia, um, Wagner's forces are becoming more embedded in some of those countries. And of course, the other big winners are the Islamic fundamentalists who are gaining a stronghold in many countries in that part of Africa. Um, it strikes me as a total nightmare from a global geopolitical perspective. It is. And there's been at least one learned commentator writing, I think on Bloomberg, speculating is this the 21st century Sarajevo moment and that's referring to the shot that was fired that started the first world war and the headline for this particular piece that I read a few days ago was is this the start of world war three or something like that and just as some you know the assassination of Arch Archduke Ferdinand in Sarajevo all those years ago was a big event in and of itself nobody at the time thought that it would lead to a global conflagration and could a, a, another relatively small event in Niger lead to the same? Of course it could. These things often have um, small beginnings. 
And the beginning is, is, is quite interesting, actually. It wasn't an anti-colonial thing. It wasn't a big deal. The actual story behind the coup in Niger, if it wasn't so serious, would be funny because the Niger president, his guy called Mohamed Bazoum, mused to some of his mates that he was thinking of replacing his chief bodyguard. And his chief bodyguard was uh, a general, uh, uh, forgive me if I pronounce his name incorrectly, but it's Chiani uh, was, was this guy's name. And Chiani got wind that his boss, the president, was thinking of replacing him as the chief bodyguard. So it was, this was a personnel matter or an HR matter, if you like. But Chiani, being a general, got the ump and decided that he didn't want to be replaced. So he turned up with his goons in the president's office and told him that he was taking over. The president then ran to his safe room, which a lot of politicians and indeed individuals these days in dodgy parts of the world have, and locked himself in. And for all I know, that's where he still is. I haven't actually seen anything that says he's come out. He may well have done. I, I don't necessarily follow everything that comes out. He's in bombarded. He, he is locked up in his house, actually, under... Yeah, and from his safe room, he dictated an op-ed article for the Washington Post. I mean, as I say, it's a series of bizarre circumstances. But as you say, since then, Wagner will and has moved in. That The new regime in Niger have announced that Wagner they've specifically mentioned them, will be teaming up with local militias to provide security for the capital city. Wagner are all over the place. They, their business model is to either install or keep in power very nasty regimes all the way through Africa and places like Syria. They're, as you say, they're involved elsewhere in the Sahel, which is that region of Africa we're talking about. In Mali, for example, they are actually hand in glove with the authorities, to coin a phrase, in Mali, in their fight against Al-Qaeda, and so on and so on. One of the, the things ab about all of this is that Putin loves chaos, and, and he likes chaos because it, it's something that he can exploit uh, in all sorts of different ways. Uh, one thing that will happen from the Sahel, if you think that Europe has an immigration problem, a refugee problem now, just wait over the next couple of years. It's going to become even worse. And from a violence war perspective, the thing that this region will export now and is exporting, it's the, it's the epicenter now rather than Afghanistan or Iraq or anywhere like that. It is the epicenter of global terrorism. And so how that works out, the Soviets exploiting the chaos, Wagner, global terrorism, the refugee crisis getting worse, who knows what China is up to, because China has all sorts of interests in Africa as well and is not disinterested in chaos for the West. So I think this is sinister. I think it has potential to go horribly wrong. Um, hopefully it amounts to nothing and that the people there um, are all safe and secure and that nothing much happens as a result of this coup. But frankly, Jim, I doubt it. Yeah, I agree with you, Chris. Uh, listen, great to talk. Uh, I just want to leave you with a statistic uh, U.S. cinemas in July took in 1.4 billion in revenues. So uh, Barbie uh, and Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer, be best film that's ever been made, Jim. Yeah. Take it easy. Talk to you. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. Hope you enjoyed it. 
Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. 